0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, a group of citizens in Calgary are planning on bidding to host the 2026 Commonwealth Games. What's that kind of due to Hamilton's 2030 bid? A Polaris Strategic Insights Survey shows that the Liberals are actually ahead of Doug Ford and the Tories, even without a leader. We'll talk with uh, Richard Brennan, former Queen's Park journalist, about that. And regardless if we get LRT or not, residents along King Street are getting displaced by Metrolinks. And they've got some ideas on how it can fix that. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today, on the Bill Kelly Show, on 900 CHML. Among many things that were discussed at City Council yesterday, and we're going to try to get to a number of them on the program today, uh, was an update on what's going to be happening with Hamilton's potential Commonwealth Games bid. Uh, In light of the fact that now we find out that a group of Calgary uh, business people and citizens are actually putting a bid together for the 2026 Games, uh, which is supposed to happen. We're supposed to have a free ride all the way down. At least that's what I was hoping, anyway. Anyway, uh, two of the uh, individuals who are very, very deeply involved in, the, in this Commonwealth project, uh, Lou Fraporti and uh, Jasper Kajaski, are with us here in studio. Guys, first of all, thanks for coming in today. Great to have you with us. Thank you, Bill. Great Absolutely. to be here. Great. Thanks. Uh, Lou, let me start with you. Are you surprised about the Calgary news?
1: We. Uh had been given to understand for some time that that was potentially going to be made public, and so we're not very surprised about it. And although I won't speak for Jasper, I think we're all, as Hamiltonians, uh, up for the fight, prepared to compete. Yeah, absolutely.
0: It, it, and again, I, I was only being facetious when I said we should have got a free ride in yeah, here. Sure. And, th- and th- just for, for people that may be just catching up on this, uh, the... the, the Part of the attraction, and there's many things we're going to talk about about this bid, uh, Jasper, but part of the attraction is, of course, 2026 is the 100th anniversary of the Commonwealth. 2030. Uh, sorry. Uh, 2030, 2030, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, and, and obviously, they that's why we want them here, because the first Commonwealth Games, called the British Empire Games, was right here in Hamilton, way back in the day. Exactly. And two and of those guys are still on council. No, I'm not <laughs> <just kidding. laughs> But But so there's a legacy element to this, too. But the, I guess the concern that a lot of people are, are worried about right now, though, Lou, is if Calgary is awarded the 2026 Games, they're not going to go back to Canada again in four years, are they?
1: No, they're not. So if that decision is made, then Hamilton will not be the recipient of the Games in 2030. And uh, we're, of course, approaching it with, with urgency. We understand the stakes. And I think as the public begins to understand what it is that we're trying to accomplish here, and as the Games Committee itself reflects on the bid submission as it's coming together, they'll begin to appreciate, I think, that we're able to provide something in the Games well beyond athletic competition that will be transformative for the region and I think um, shine very well on the Games and Games Federation globally. Jasper, I was just
0: mentioning before we started the segment here, reminiscing really about the first time uh, when I was on council, I guess about nineteen twenty years ago now, that the city decided to go after a Commonwealth Games bid. And we got all the way to the finals. I mean, it was between us and some, someplace in the Caribbean. I can't remember no, where it was.
2: New Delhi, and that was the bid for the 2010 games that got decided in 2003. Yeah. So that was the one where Hamilton got the closest, where we had been designated as Can- Canada's bid city. And now, you know, you raise the issue of of, of Calgary. And as as Lou said, in terms of legacy, there... There's the le- First of all, there's the legacy of the 100th anniversary. So the whole concept of having the time to prepare into the entire country, hosting the world, uh, and having Hamilton be, you know, be its designated city to, to celebrate the 100th anniversary. So you have the legacy of the 100th anniversary. And then the social impact legacy that Lou is, is leading is, is just so huge in terms of differentiating from just trying to squeeze a games into a normal you know, four-year cycle. And with the greatest respect to Calgary, great community, we love our Western cousins, but Calgary is, is sort of jumping in at the last moment to host the games that needs to be awarded. And what we've been doing for months and months and months is preparing an enormous legacy project, which Lou uh, can get into to so many great details on beyond just sport. That that and going beyond just have infrastructure really beyond the infrastructure. I mean, so, and b-
0: the infrastructure is important. I mean, let's yeah. not be a little that, Lou. As a matter of fact, there's still one piece of it that's existing from those uh, initial British Empire games, and that's Jimmy Thompson Pool. Yeah.
1: So, you know, in in getting involved in this some months back, and and I did originally um, my day job and and um, <laughs> where I spent my career uh, with my colleagues in Hamilton is the managing partner of the Gowling WLG office. Mm-hmm. And it was in that capacity that PJ first approached me to talk about the organizational structure for the Games. But um, having gotten involved in understanding what the Games is and what it can be, and because of the relationships that we've cultivated in this community with the key institutions here, and uh, my colleagues and I have been spending the last three or four years working very closely with economic development in Hamilton, with McMaster University and and Mohawk College. And in fact, some may have seen the news that we are building a remarkable new facility ourselves at the Innovation Park. Um, we uh, are very committed stakeholders in this region, uh, view the Hamilton and uh, all the, the talent within it as being world class and felt that getting involved in the Games as a law firm, helping to promote this region both here and globally was something we wanted to do beyond simply providing legal services. And as we began to dig in, a few things came, um, came to us. First of all, although the public might not appreciate it, the Commonwealth Games as a, as a sports venture has... Uh, ambitions beyond sports that are compelling. Uh, they are very much purposed and interested in social impact in a variety of different ways. They believe as an institution globally that their mandate is to make the world a better place beyond athletics and to use sports as a vehicle for communicating that. And in doing that, we realized that um, the talent, thought leadership, the people within this community certainly share the ambition of working, making the world a better place. We have in our institutions, our business leaders, researchers, engineers, a remarkable capacity to, to change the world. And what we're trying to do in creating a legacy project for this game in Hamilton is to harness all of that, the capacity to, uh, to innovate, to uh, bring new solutions to the world, and connect it to the games. And it's in the the curation, the architecting of that strategy, which we're going to be delighted to present to Council in february uh, that we're excited to have people understand the magnitude of the impact that's ahead
0: and and I, I don't obviously there's some details that you can't get into right now that'll have to wait until after you have that make that presentation to council we understand that but uh, we were just harkening back to that 2003 bid jasper and and what impressed me most of all is when i was on city council there uh, hearing that first presentation uh, was the team that came together to do that. Uh, the, the late and I think great Peter George of course from McMaster University right. uh, spearheaded a lot of this and it was it was a combination it wasn't one or two it wasn't the city uh, the city was simply said, look at we've already got the team we need the city on side here for your support et cetera like this but there was the, the who's who really at that point uh, came together and said this is something that can happen and look how far we got in that process.
2: Well and and at the time you know, you had a lot of, you know, like you said, the people that were involved back then, you know, did their very best. There were different circumstances, yeah. obviously. The Indian bid, the fact that at the time India had never hosted a Commonwealth Games, largest populated country in the Commonwealth, was a different dynamic than, than what we're facing today. Part, uh, The other part of the, some of the difference today in terms of how this has been essentially a community-driven and private sector and institutional, institutionally-driven bid that has sought the city's permission as opposed to just going to the city and saying you need to cut the check for for all this work to be done and you know i think there's been an important part of the process that's allowed it to get this far is the fact that there's been so much of the community engagement all the people that are involved in the bid you know obviously you know pj Mercanti, greg Maycheck, cecilia carter smith mark vu the whole team lou and the entire team that's coming in from gallings others that are coalescing into it so there's so many Groups that are behind this and so many people that are involved in it that it has momentum beyond just being an individual
0: dream. It's a it's it's a community dream now. How do you see this as, as transformational? I mean, let's let's assume that we, you know, that we get the games in 2030. Uh, how do you see this community being impacted by that? Quite aside from, like I say, the bricks and mortar. I mean, uh, that tw- the, uh, that 03 bit, of course, there was a big issue about a new stadium. because That was still on the blocks. And, and
2: that's being resolved. I mean, we're not, obviously yeah, we're, we're not, not relitigating No, we're that. not going the bottom there. bottom line is we got it. And and the fact that <laughs> it's interesting that the fact that the opening, closing ceremonies and rugby sevens for the 2030 games will literally not just be played in the same country because Canada was the first host, and it won't just be in the same city because Hamilton hosted the Empire, the British Empire Games in 2030, but literally the opening and closing ceremonies would be on exactly the same ground as they started yeah. in. And, you know, we could tell the world, and, and that was specifically planned because we knew we were going <laughs> to do it, and, and uh, we'll, we'll keep the story of how we got there sort of uh, to ourselves.
0: I yeah, guess. yeah, well, let's not go down that road again. It is what it but is. the transformative
2: part that really is, is the most important is the one that Lou is talking about.
0: And 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 this is this is what I, I think is going to be one of the key factors in this because I think for for the, the, the uninformed that don't know much about doing these sorts of presentations and and these sorts of bids, Lou, they they will simply go, wow, we might get a new pool, or we might get this or that. This this is much more than that. This is uh, from what we've seen, and you mentioned Greg Maycheck's name just a few minutes ago. Greg, of course, worked diligently on on both bids that uh, that Hamilton's done in the in most recent past, uh... and part of that process. And I know you guys have done the same thing, Lou. You've visited some of the sites where the games have already taken place and seen. This is not like the 76 Olympics of Montreal where you're seeing grass growing on some of the facilities because once the games are over, there's really no effective use for them. This is what, what's happened here in the UK and in other places uh, is, is long-lasting and still actually going on. The, benefit, the net benefit just seems to just continue.
1: So much of the conversation, Bill, tends to be historically around those hard assets as, as legacy. In, in revisiting what it is that legacy ought to be, and I think reflecting as we have over the last few months and the voices from this community that were very concerned about spending an enormous amount of money uh, on hard assets when you have so many disadvantaged communities um, within this region, it seemed to be a choice that many weren't interested in. And understandably, City Council... They're stewards of their communities. They're very concerned about ensuring that the well-being of the entire community is taken into consideration. When you reflect on all of that and try to figure out how it is that we can create something that satisfies those needs, but also is persuasive to a games committee. And, uh, you know, I spent my entire career as a litigator and a lawyer. And when you're trying to persuade, you need to very much be thinking about what that other person needs to hear to make a decision. So you asked about Calgary, and of course, we need to get beyond Canada for the games to be awarded to Hamilton, but an understanding what the global organization is looking for. uh, They they want something that will have impact beyond simply the host city that will help in some way to change the world. And when you look at the capacities that we have in this region, you realize that we have world-class folks in a variety of different verticals, businesses, research, academia, uh, that are doing magnificent work, a lot of which isn't evident to those who live here. When you are focused on creating a legacy that is about solving difficult problems that relate to some of the most vexing things that face communities around the world, whether it's poverty, affordable housing, clean drinking water, uh, bringing new technologies to solve those problems, and you reflect on who and what we have here, you realize that many of these people in their capacities could actually be harnessed to solve those problems. And it is in the solving of those problems with those people, in new types of partnerships with government, private industry, academia, that you can harness an enormous amount of capacity that can i think gift to the games and to the world at large all the commonwealth communities um some developments that will radically alter not only the lives of those who live here but those who live in communities across the world and to have Hamilton have the legacy of having solved those problems, is what we're trying to put together.
0: And by the way, we're not reinventing the wheel here, uh, because a lot of the stuff you've just talked about has already begun to happen here. I mean, I know there are some people in this community right now that say, "Come on, Hamilton! Come on!" It's just, but you go international, go outside—not just outside this province, but outside this country. Uh, Hamilton has an incredible reputation as, as, a, as a research center, uh, academia, as you mentioned, as medical research. I mean, some of the greatest medical innovations in the last number of years were developed right here in Hamilton, and they know that. So, you know, the, the robotic surgical arm, you know, the the, the vandalum Puffer was invented at the Firestone Clinic many, many years ago, and on and on it goes. McMaster University has consistently been one of the top 100 universities in the world. So, you know, we're, we're building on that reputation. We don't have to invent it, do we?
1: No, we don't. And, you know, as it relates to MAC, for example, what most might not appreciate is last year, MAC was, was voted globally as the second most impactful university yeah. in the world, which is itself a remarkable accomplishment. And, and when you're uh, tasked to do something that is about impact, having an ally at your side of that magnitude, of course, is critically important. Mm-hmm. But as much as we're wanting to talk about Hamilton and returning to this idea of persuading the Global Games Committee to award the games, not really just to Hamilton, but to Ontario and to Canada, because we see it that way. We're wanting to create coalitions, um, not, not just of institutions or groups within the city, but beyond that. And so we've been talking to the city of, of Toronto. Uh, I will be meeting with the mayors of Kitchener-Waterloo in early February. We, of course, are talking to the federal and provincial government, and not primarily focused on sport, but on education, labor and employment, innovation, manufacturing. Those are the legacy ambitions for these games that uh, I think are quite surprising. They're innovative, they're disruptive. Um, and I think where it is that we hope to bring this community in, in the region in securing the games. And it, it, it bears remembering when we think about Hamilton itself, to some extent, we're, we're looking to recover uh, a glory that this city was as one of the pioneering places in the world, technologically, uh, at the time in which the games, the Empire games, were first put on. Mm-hmm. And what many might not understand, for example, is that the atrium building at the Innovation Park was the original Westinghouse headquarters yep. in the early part of the last century. The the, the, be, the beauty and narratives of some of those stories uh, of our our city and region's excellence and global relevance is something that we very much want to help others in this region to recover and to do it in partnership with other communities.
0: There's a, an interesting dynamic that's occurring here, Jasper, and we, you've talked about the, some of the other stuff that you've, you've been trying to support here for the city, and some of them have actually happened. Uh, we're losing borders, and, which I think is a good thing. I mean, we used to look at Burlington as a competitor. We used to look at KW and say, why can't we have the sort of success that they do up there when it comes to research and innovation? Now we're partners with them. Uh, and and that makes everybody stronger and it because uh, I know uh, again to go back to t- trade situations people don't look in, at Hamilton and Toronto and Burlington as separate entities they look at this as the greater golden horseshoe area it's a trade corridor sure. it's well, a business
2: corridor it's, it's an innovation corridor yeah, it's one of the largest markets in the, on the entire continent and by far the largest in Canada in terms of a, of a regional marketplace and and area so that's a huge part of why Hopefully, you know, the, the, you know, Commonwealth Games Canada is going to have to take a look at, you know, uh, sort of a quick last minute, you know, issue in regards to uh, squeezing the games into, you know, like I said, that four year normal period the games be, are hosted or, or do something absolutely transformative in the, in the most populated part of the, of the country uh, under with the legacy that Lou has been outlining and all of the other pieces of the puzzle. We think that that's, a, that's a more compelling vision.
0: Got a couple of minutes left here. Uh, Lou, where are you in, in in the timeline? I understand, obviously, you're going to pre- present to Port Council in, in, I guess, about a month or so. In the middle of February, I think it is,
1: isn't it? Yeah, correct. Um, and, and then... Um, but
0: that's is that the finished product, or is that a, an update?
1: No, that for us will be the, the submission in, in what is virtually a finished product. The next step is the submission of that final proposal to the Commonwealth Games Group, and that will happen as of March 9th, Just Yeah,
2: March 9th. Uh, February 19th, Council will... Will be asked to again give permission to Hamilton 100 to submit this Part Two proposal, which is essentially an update in the the next stage of the Part One proposal that's already been completed, and uh, you know it'll have a sense of commitment that you know if we are awarded the games, that the city will be one of the parties at the table with other senior levels of government. That's the theory that you have to be able to move forward on. So any province would be under uh, any city in any part of the country would be subject to the same rules. And then March 9th is the deadline, and we expect probably by the end of March that there would be some indication from Commonwealth Games Canada as to what they're going to do with these two submissions.
0: And that's the first step, right? You've got to get their blessing, yeah. first of all, and be the Canadian representative?
1: Correct. And, right. then, and then yeah. it, it goes uh, across the pond. Um, and, and, you know, we have it as a firm. We have an interesting connection to this as well because we have a very large office in Birmingham, England, where the 2022 mm-hmm. games are being held, and yep. we happen to be the advisors to the 2022 games in Birmingham. Our firm happens to be the legal counsel to the Canadian and Commonwealth Games team for 2022. So there are a variety of connections uh, that we have. We feel very strongly about what I think the strength of this bid in this region will be. We're all caring very deeply about the legacy of the Games, both for the Games themselves. We we think that they're very differentiated in and how they respect and... Um, encourage promoting the dignity of human beings beyond athletics and and we feel very much aligned with that as we do in this community as a whole and we 're excited about the possibility of winning it for Hamilton
0: What I would like to do is we 're just about out of time here right now is uh, pencil you guys in for just after that you make your city council presentation uh, so that we can inform other people and let them know just where we are on this and and some of the details about this that, which I know is are still under wraps right now. But thanks so much for this uh, this update today. Uh, this is an exciting time for the city. This is and this is this is really enhancing I think uh, the I think the, the very positive attitude a lot of people are for. In this. Good luck with this guys and we'll talk again in a couple of weeks. Thank, thank you, thanks Bill. so much Bill. Luke Forti and uh, Jasper Kajaskia uh, and of course w- involved with the uh, Commonwealth 100.
1: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: I want to talk about the poll that was released yesterday here in the province of Ontario. Uh, and this was done uh, by uh, the uh, Polaris Strategy Insights survey that was done here in the province of Ontario. And according to this poll, the Ontario Liberals now lead the Progressive Conservatives in popular support: thirty-three percent for the Liberals, twenty-nine percent for the Doug Ford Progressive Conservative Party. New Democrats are twenty-seven percent in third place. Uh, Greens at nine percent. Uh, interesting numbers. And and I understand this is not an election year in the province here. So I mean, but there is some relevance about this too. And the government's, I guess, doing what they can, or what they think they should do anyway, to try to gain some popularity uh, and some support from the public. And it's not going well, obviously. We talked yesterday at great length about the uh contract uh, talks, or or lack of contract talks, really, with teachers' unions right across the province, just all of the teachers' unions, in fact, without contracts. And we already started rotating strikes, and we don't know where that's going. And to try to address that, I guess, the Education Minister, uh, Stephen Lecce, made an announcement yesterday uh, about extra funding for daycare for families that might be impacted uh, because of these rotating strikes that are going on. And, uh, well, Mr. Lecce was trying to be contrite about it. I think is maybe the best way to characterize it.
1: My hope is that this will provide some relief for families, for every child within our schools. Uh, That is a positive, proactive step forward. But I will say to you, it is with regret that I'm even in this position today to make an announcement of this type because I believe parents uh, and their children should not be in the middle of the debate or the ongoing negotiations. They should be in class.
0: Uh, and that's obviously one of the talking points that Mr. Lecce has repeated time and time again, which may well be contributing to the fact that uh, they've fallen to second place in the popular polls. I want to bring Richard Brennan into the conversation. Of course, Richard, a retired journalist uh, with the Toronto Star, who covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for many, many years. Uh, Badger, I haven't talked to you for a while. Welcome back to the program. Yes,
3: Happy New Year. And to you, too. <laughs>
0: Uh, I, I understand, as I just mentioned, uh, you know, this is this is not an election year, so it's not as if, you know, the, I'm sure the, the, the PCs are looking at this and say, oh my God, we're in trouble. But uh, this is a trend and a continuation of a trend that started last year, uh, how the money have fallen. They're, they're still down. The fact that the Liberals are at 33, I find interesting, since, uh, you know, I don't know if anybody could name the four or five members of the Liberal caucus right now. But uh, it's, it's, I think, more of a reflection of the discontent a lot of people are feeling towards Doug Ford and, the, and his government.
3: Well you know there's a a few things at at play here i think um yeah this looks bad and 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 it doesn't and they seem to be having a very difficult time scratching their way back but what they have going for them i think is this hapless liberal leadership and yeah they're you know they don't have a leader right now and you know this is a it, it looks a bit alarming but uh you know don't 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 dismiss the fact that the margin of error in this is assigned at about Mm
4: 2.1%.
3: So, you know, that's still pretty close. I mean, they should be ahead, of course. The government should be ahead of the Liberals. God, they don't, like you say, don't even have a leader. But I I was talking to a senior Liberal just uh, just last week and said that uh, even they don't expect to uh, win the next election. And I thought that was pretty alarming. This is a person really plugged in, and said that they don't think that the Liberals will win this next election, despite these polls that have showed uh, Doug Ford and his gang at you know um, you know at pretty low, quite frankly, right? And, and for several months now, not just now, but just several months. So I, this is a this is a situation that's fluid. I I just don't know where it's headed, but I'll tell you. I wouldn't. If I was a liberal, I wouldn't be having any celebration yet that they've got the, they've got it in the bag. Come the next election, because uh, I, I just don't, uh, I don't see that as being a done deal by any stretch.
0: Well, that that was the point I was making. That I think it really is just showing that there's a lot of disconnect with the the, the Ford Party and the public right now. Uh, that 29 percent that we just talked about here is pretty much where they've been for about the last nine or ten months, isn't it?
3: Yeah, it is. Yeah.
0: Uh, as opposed to the 41%, I think it was, that they had when they won the election uh, back in the day. But you you and I talked uh, late last year, it was just after uh, the the federal election, uh, uh, the sabbatical, I guess, that the Ford government took, and they actually did sit for a few days before they broke for the Christmas break, and they're still on that Christmas break now. But anyway, uh, you suggested that we were going to see a kinder, kinder, gentler Doug Ford, uh, you know, when they went back to work and uh, to try to, to do something about these numbers and to try to get on the good side of voters again. Uh, I don't know that he's tried a whole lot to do that. I don't know. It, clearly, he's not being very successful at it. And I, I, I characterize what uh, Minister Lecce released yesterday it was probably another attempt to try to curry favor with parents, and and I'm not so sure it's going to be effective.
3: Well, I don't think so either. I I know that you know folks obviously need this money, it really is a disruption for families to have to have uh, take measures to have their kids looked after or even take the day off. So, I mean, the money means something to them. But that, it doesn't mean much. It means that they're being looked after. Does does it mean that they're going to throw their support behind the Conservative Party because they're getting $60 a day? I don't think so. And they know, people know that's their money. I mean, they're being bribed by their own money. And, and people aren't stupid. They realize that. They, I mean, they may take it, but again, it's it's a, it's a stopgap measure. I tell you right now, Bill, this this dispute, this labor dispute with the teachers, is not going to be resolved, and they are going to be legislated back to work. That's where this is all headed. There's not a chance in hell that this dispute is going to be uh, you know uh, done at you know done at the The bargaining table is gonna be resolved there. No no way. This is this is when they come back February eighteenth or maybe even sooner, the legislature I'm referring to. Mm -hmm. That's where this is headed. This this is not gonna be resolved.
0: There's just too much on the table right now, and and they're not really addressing a lot of those issues. I mean, I know Mr. Lecce, Minister Lecce is making the same sort of talking points that I guess every uh, uh, education minister makes when they get into these contract situations. You know, it's all about money. And, and you talk to Harvey Bischoff from the Secondary School Teachers Federation, and, and – and, it, it it's, 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 it's systemic, really. They don't like the way the education system is structured these days. And I'm not hearing Mr. Lucci even talking about that, things like classroom size and available courses and things of this nature. And, and and what I'm hearing from an awful lot of the teachers that I've talked to over the last couple of days, uh, Badger, is that they, they're, they're just hearkening back to that Doug Ford you know, promise that not one person is going to lose their job. Well, We already know that thousands of teachers have already lost their job and thousands more are going to lose their jobs.
3: Well, it's a, it, it's it, it's a hot air that they you know, and the promises that they made early on—they're coming back to hurt this government, like you said. Not one job. Well, we knew that was a fantasy as soon as it came out of his mouth. But people, you know, are and teachers are saying, you know, you said this and you did quite the opposite. I watched his press conference at uh, on the CP twenty-four just before this call, and he was announcing. Uh, uh,
0: well, the scholarship the for yeah.
3: the scholarship for the 57 who died in that plane crash in Iran. But of course, the reporters there wanted to ask about the about the strikes, the one day strikes, and and probably more than that coming up. And he said, made it very clear: we're not about, in his words, we're not budge on the you know the one percent increase. That's it
0: and what what does that tell you then about well,
3: well it's done i mean i, I mean the, the deal is going to be done when they bring them back you know and the legislature back and they legislate them back to work that's where it's headed i mean they, they're at an impasse and it's and it's not it's not going you know you, i mean i've seen this show before and that's where it's going and it's not going to be uh resolved before that just not happening
0: well, and one of the talk—I mean, we talk about Mr. Lutchy's talking points and Doug Ford's talking points. I mean, the, one of the, the things that the teachers keep hammering away on too is how can you call this a negotiation when you've already said that you're only going to get a one percent raise? Well,
3: yeah, I mean that was it. Uh, they really, by doing that prior, I mean they—they, uh, I'm sure that they think that's the smartest thing they ever did. Was you know to bring the legis- you know—bring this legislation to being and saying the one percent for everybody in the government. That's it. And no ifs, ands, or buts. But it really, what it did with the teachers, it, it, it just—I mean, it was a, a thumb in the eye, and that's that bothers them. I know the teachers aren't asking for much. I, I know they're asking for more than one percent, but I know they're not asking for much more than that. But now it's really gone under the skin that they—they they don't even have the opportunity to bargain for more than one percent because it—that ceiling that was imposed.
0: How smart was that? I mean, you've been doing this for years, and you've been covering a number of different conflicts between uh, teachers at the end of contracts, with both the Liberals and the Conservatives, over the last number of years. Uh, you always, as, as, as a government, you try to leave yourself a little bit of wiggle room, don't you, to be able to say, okay, fine, I'll put this on the table And you know the, the old adage that, well, you've, you've got the, the real offer that you, you really want us to sur- settle for in your back pocket, and you still haven't brought it out yet. Uh, when they lay their cards on the table and say it's going to be one percent, that's all there is to it. The, the, there's, there's not much opportunity for them to come back with anything else.
3: Well, we've, all, you know, I, I bargained a contract many, many years ago. You, you hear, the, you know, the, the other side say, you know, the one percent or whatever it might be. And that's it. But you know, in in those cases, it's not it. You know, there is room for bargaining. In this case, we know there is no room for bargaining. And, and I I said it was it, – they may think it was smart, might politically smart to do this, but it was in terms of trying to reach a deal and something that the uh, – and get to keep the kids back in school. Well, it just isn't there now. It, there is just no possibility that they're going to resolve this and get the kids back in school. And that's, that's what I think what is bothered – just not the teachers, but is bothering in the uh, – the parents as well because you know this was this is where it was headed right from the very beginning
0: what is the strategy here is it, is it to to are they waiting for the teachers to walk out all together and and then come in like you know the night on the white horse and say we're saving you students we're saving your school year we're going to order them back to work
3: well i mean that's i i think this was a, that this was their Plan all along that this is where you know they they would uh, legislate them back to work. I don't I don't have I mean how could they not think anything but that given you know the imposition that they they made about you know just the one percent
0: ceiling. So they're almost daring the, the the teachers to walk out then. Well,
3: and I had to laugh uh, when I was watching. You know, I, it's funny. You know, just history repeats itself constantly in politics. And and uh, Ford kept saying, you know, it's not the teacher that bothers us. We're not against the teacher. It's that union leaders, you know, those union bosses. And, well, you know what? Look at what is some of these uh, unions voted as high as 97%, 98% to go on strike. So I don't think it was that, stri- you know, the fact that they're out now is all because the union bosses them to do it. The, the what bothers what bothers uh any government is that the teachers union is so united and is so strong and and, and they and they've 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 locked horns with every government that you know going way back mm-hmm. and i have to, you know the, the teachers themselves are responsible a bit for this too they they had the opportunity to support the liberals, and they said no. We're, you know that they they've done us they've done us wrong. Where I'm not quite sure, but that's what they, they determined in their minds. And so we got you know, they got the Ford government, and now they don't like the Ford government. So what is it? What is it they want? Do, do they want to just they want the government to run, run education, or do the teachers want to run education themselves?
0: well it's it's going back to the old political game here. I mean, you get what you pay for, don't you, in an election? Uh, right. There were an awful lot of people that were disenchanted with the wind government for a whole lot of reasons, uh, and and they all in en masse seemed to turn their backs on the government and say, well, "We're not going to support you this time." And, and that included, by the way, Leuna, the, the big the union, of course, you know it's a, they'd been doing very, very well and had very, very strong supporters of the Liberals, uh, and they they withdrew their support, the teachers withdrew their support, and what did they think was going to happen? Uh, you know, you know, you already saw what Doug Ford was proposing. We already knew what was yeah. what was on the agenda. We already knew that that you know the 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 conservative platform that was uh, done by Patrick Brown, which might have been a little more palatable, got tossed in the garbage as soon as Doug Ford became leader. Uh, so you get what you get here. That's what it comes down to now. Yeah, be careful what you wish for. Yeah, exactly. And this is this is not going to end well. I can just see this.
3: Well, I just, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm. Our, my kids are all grown up, and of course they have kids of their own now. But, but the point is, it's just so disruptive to have strikes and, and to families. I mean, every, most families, both parents work now, so it's not like there's. It's not like when I was a kid, and you know, mom stayed home. Uh, it's not like that at all. So both parents are out there trying to scratch together a living, and then they have this wrench thrown at them of, of kids going out. Look at the teachers have the right to strike. Nobody questions that. And the government has the right to say no. So where are we going to end up? I
0: know exactly where that's going to end up. So do I. It seems uh, it seems almost inevitable at this oh, stage. Oh, it is. Ab- absolutely. Badger, we've got to break it off. We're just about out of time. Thanks, as always. We'll talk again soon. Okay, Bill. Thanks. Bye. Richard Brennan, of course, a retired journalist uh, who covered Queens Park for many, many years. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday, some of the uh, tenants and former tenants, I guess really, uh, along King Street, uh, that have been displaced by the LRT project uh, and uh, hit a media conference downtown. Uh, this is a, a problem that nobody's really spent a whole lot of time talking about, but um, we're talking about people here and and, and their well-being. Uh, with the announcement, of course, last uh, month that uh, the government is not going to build the LRT here, withdrew the, the idea, the money's still on the table, we all know that. But Metrolinx, as we recall, bought an awful lot of those properties in anticipation of building this thing, and what's going to happen to those properties, and what's going to happen to the people that live there now, and or have lived there? Well, uh, the group is called the King Street Tenants United, and uh, we've uh, been pleased to welcome two of them into the studio right now. Sean Selway and uh, Sharon Miller are both with us. Uh, first of all, thank you for uh, coming in today. I Appreciate you in here. This is a an interesting issue that, uh, and I'm glad you were able to sh- shine the light on this. Maybe you could explain the situation, Sean, as to how people are feeling and why people are feeling so frustrated about this.
4: Well, the, apparently the project. Uh is not going to happen, although obviously there uh, must be a lot going on behind the scenes at the moment. Um, but people have been put out of their homes in a situation where you have very rapid increases in rent pretty well everywhere in the city. And although they got, had some support from Metrolinx during a transition period of up to a year or so, nonetheless, you're still in a – it doesn't solve the overall problem. And particularly in that part of the city um, where there are a lot of low-income people single-parent families and so on uh, it has really we think the city has neglected its responsibilities there they have a report from IBI group at consultants that they hired back in 2009 to look at the whole rapid transit project as it was then called they said that w- although transit would benefit some of the lower income people in the area they would of course have to be there in order to benefit from it and uh, so that the city as they put it ought to uh, exercise caution so as not to displace those people from the corridor that's 2009 so in the intervening Ten years? Yeah, how that they work? Certainly out? <laughs> have done nothing of the sort.
0: <laughs> well, here's the thing, though. Uh, and, and again, you know, we heard this. Okay, we're going to have to, pur- you know, buy up some land, and there there could be some expropriations. Uh, and Metrolinx went to work in doing that. And and the way they ex- they described it at the time, and was everything is going swimmingly. You know, it's smooth <laughs> transition, and you know we're we're moving people out, and then we're going to start building this thing. Uh, the stories that you guys are telling us right now is totally different from what we were hearing from Metrolinks. Explain exactly what happened it, it, with, to a lot, a lot of these people that were living uh, along that, that corridor.
5: Well, I myself, uh, my property was bought in June of 2017. Uh, I met with a man from Metrolinks and Dave Derbyshire from the city. Yeah, And they gave me all these things they were going to do for me, all the compensation I was going to get. But I kept telling them, in the long run, I'm still going to have to pay two, $300 more in rent that I can't afford. Uh, like, do I have to pay rent, pay my bills, or do I eat? And they didn't seem to understand the literal problems or some of the unique needs of some of the tenants for being moved somewhere else.
0: Okay, let me, let me just back up for a second here, because I want people to understand exactly what's going on here. Uh, you were offered compensation, they said, but at the same time, did they simply say, you have to go find someplace else, or did they help you to do that?
5: Well, yeah, that's, that's where it started to get really dicey, was they put me in touch with Hamilton Housing Help Center. Okay. They should really take the word help out of that. <laughs> uh, I gave them all my doctor's notes. Stating what my needs were, my husband's needs were. And then Hamilton Housing started calling me. They had apartments on the 17th floor, the 13th floor. And I said to them, I can't do that. I go, I suffer from PTSD. You should have my doctor's notes. Nothing was forwarded to them. Absolutely nothing.
0: So they didn't know who you were, what you were, or what your needs were? No,
5: no. And then when I contacted Morgan Stanek from the Housing Help Center, who was supposed to be on my case, when I confronted her about why this what hadn't been done, she hung up on me. And
0: I, was, right, now like, I can understand why you wanted to take help out of that. that, that title. Yeah. OK. Uh, it, and it, and, you, and this, is not, this is not just you. This is not unique to you. This I'm is sure, happening to I'm other sure residents. I'm sure
5: I'm not the only one that has been put through this.
0: Uh, here's a very elementary question, though. <laughs> If if they say okay, we're going to find you another place. If the rent has increased so significantly, as, as as it did in your particular case, where's the money coming from?
5: Well, they said they would uh, offset the difference for one year, but still, at the end of that one year, I'm the one still responsible. Sure. For that increase that I can't afford.
0: I mean, if you're paying, pick a number, a thousand bucks a month. Hopefully, it's not that much. But <laughs> if it is a thousand bucks a month, and the place they put you in is is fourteen hundred bucks a month. Uh, that may be good. They may give you the 400 bucks to, cut, to offset that. But, I mean, at the end of the year, what are you, on the street now?
5: That's about it. Or you're stealing from Peter to pay Paul. Yeah. Just to get by.
0: I know. And I, I know people who have talked about this in the past, uh, Sean, with a number of people that are in very precarious uh, situations right now where they actually have to make that decision. Do I buy groceries this week or do I pay the rent?
5: And that's happening now, yeah, even I, without sure. being displaced.
0: Exactly.
4: Yeah, I, and it points to that the, to, the, this is just part of a much larger problem, which is that th- we really need to, we do have a right to housing, um, but deter- t- trying to figure out who's responsible th- for that has become quite difficult. Um, we need a new form of housing. The market is not delivering affordable housing measured in terms of 30% or so of income, maybe 45% of income if you... Take transportation into account. So if the market can't or won't deliver it, then somebody else has to. Presumably, the municipal government, or some combination of provincial and, and federal and municipal money, but that item has not been on the agenda up to this point. Even though the need uh, continues to grow, uh, you know, all over the 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 province, not just in Hamilton. I have. You know, I'm looking here at a at a very interesting um, chart that the Social Planning and Research Council put out in uh, 2019, and it, it it the city of Hamilton, 50 percent of people, uh, of peop- uh, 45 percent of people uh, that are renters are spending 50 percent or more of their household income on shelter costs. And it's very much the same for St. Catharines, Toronto, Halton region, region of Peel, region of Waterloo. And the Ontario overall is 45% again of people that are renters that are spending 50% or more. And, of the, and the bar, income just, on let's, shelter. let's
0: reiterate, the bar is supposed to be about 30%. The yeah, bar is about so 30%. That you, so that yeah. you have some disposable income to buy groceries, maybe pay a hydro bill, things like that. Uh, when we talked to the Social Planning Research Council recently, uh, we had a number of them here in the studio, uh, they told us that they they actually have some people that are paying sixty five seventy yeah. percent of their of their 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 income goes to rent just to cover the rent to put a roof over their head that's it and, and that doesn't cover utilities or anything else no. so this is very precarious uh, and I, I guess it's it's made more precarious actually Sharon by the fact that now all of a sudden you got to find a different place to live so and so Metrolinx, I still owns this stuff as of now yes
5: yes they are my landlords
0: okay. Uh, what do you want to see happen here? What, Because you, you're not just saying fix this. You're, you've got some ideas. You've talked about this.
5: Well, w- we thought that uh, some of the buildings that are sitting empty now boarded up.
0: And they look like hell, by the way. Of course they do.
5: <laughs> I mean, you I drive live, down
0: King Street right now and you figure... I live right in the yeah, middle well,
5: of everything boarded. I mean, like, it's Plywood City. Yeah. And we think that some of these... The heat's been turned off, water's been turned off. That stuff should be turned back on. These places should be looked at to be refurbished if need be, repairs done, and then let the people that were displaced from these units have the right at first choice to whether they would like to go back at their what they were paying rent before. And if not, then there are other people out there that need that affordable housing. How many
0: many units are we talking about here?
5: There's 27 in the building we were in front of for our press conference. It was the first building emptied.
0: But uh, my understanding is there's over 100 units uh, all along the route here that, that could fall under this category.
5: Well, my house is a duplex.
0: And it's sitting empty right now?
5: Uh, no, no, I'm, you're the, you're still there. still there, but
0: many of these properties are sitting empty are right sitting now, empty. and here we are talking about housing crisis, Sean, and people that can't find a, a, a affordable housing uh, can't afford to pay rent, and we we have buildings that are up, which I assume have good bones, I mean, you know, the, the construction, yes, et cetera, they do, yeah. it, but there's going to be some repair costs. I mean, I, I can't understand why they're not rushing and simply saying, let's let's get these people back off of, uh, in, in, into the places in which they live for the longest time the problem you're running into is typical of government red tape though you don't know who to talk to do you
4: no um no but we know what to say (laughs) 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 and that is that that parcel of land all of those small properties that metrolinks has accumulated ought to be kept together as one parcel the buildings that are standing there that need some repairs and rehabilitation should be retained and used for residential housing And then on a lot of the vacant lots there, there's lots of room to build new affordable housing. And professional opinion seems to be converging on the idea of a four- to six-story wood frame building built to passive house standards, which makes them very energy efficient and lowers your Mm -hmm. operating costs going forward. But because providing non-market affordable housing has not been on the agenda we don't know exactly how to do it and this would be a very good opportunity for us to find out exactly how to do it and then to replicate that through the rest of the city and indeed the rest of the province
0: and, and let's cut to the quick here okay we keep you referring to Metrolinx that's supposed to be the the quote-unquote arms-length agency It's yes. it's the government. It's the Ontario government yes, I mean indeed. they work for the Ontario government they, they, they exist because of the Ontario government uh, and uh, it, it's probably, it's it's incumbent that the Ontario government gets involved in this. I mean, they're ultimately the ones that are going to say, or, whether or they could just give the land back to the city if they wanted to and, and have the city do this with city housing. I don't even know if that's the right solution. But the government, the Ontario government's reticence to get involved in public housing at all is problematic. And this is just a shining example of it here. I mean, that they have to be part of the solution here.
4: Yes, they do. Um, but I don't know if it's social housing is is exactly the best approach. There is social housing. It's very much underfunded. There needs to be a lot more sure. of it. We have a very long waiting list. But we need something for lower-income people who are working people who cannot afford to continue to pay the kind of rents that they're paying. Wages are completely stagnant. The Conservatives canceled the minimum wage increase. Yep. So it's just becoming increasingly impossible for, for people to survive. And you have growing poverty because you can't get ahead you just keep sliding back a little bit the rents keep going up your wages sit still and when there's no other outcome we need to provide some kind of affordable housing for those people
0: this is going to have to be a political solution uh, and and that uh, as we mentioned before has to be between the province and and the city's got a role to play here and I mean they can't simply stand back and say well we don't own the land so there's nothing we can do I mean they've got to advocate if nothing else and, and start banging on doors to try to get some help here. Have you had any response at all from the city on this?
4: Not at the moment I, because, as we know, there are a lot of groups with different views as to what should happen with LRT and transit generally in the city. Well, as you mentioned right at the and beginning so of our
0: conversation, I mean, there are still some that think this thing is going to go through anyway.
4: I'm yes, sorry, there, there, are, there the, are some that the, think the
0: yeah, LRT is still going to be built. Yeah.
4: Yes, that's right, and there are people who are opposed to it for various reasons. and then there are people that appear to prefer highway development. We just don't know, and so I wouldn't expect to see council weighing in too heavily on a use for the land that might preclude LRT development at the moment. Um, we would very much like them to do so, but, th- but there is a contradiction between a lot of that land is accumula- is acquired in order to build the stations which are quite large in an LRT system and would also be quite large but not th- quite the same for a rapid bus transit system. So until that issue is sorted out, I wouldn't expect City Council to be doing what is really required here, which is to start working on this alternative form of housing. I, I may point out that the the LRT project itself is not primarily a transit project. It's re- It's a... It's a property uplift project. So John Paul Danko told the SPEC uh, recently that at its core, LRT is an economic development investment designed to reduce residential property taxes citywide through new high-density urban and commercial development along the LRT corridor. That's the primary purpose of LRT, Rapid Bus, or whatever would be put in that corridor. Um, We don't see why the people that are living in that area should be having to go through all this commotion uh, in order to reduce property taxes citywide especially when there uh, won't even be in anywhere in the vicinity of that project living in order to ride on the transit when it finally gets put in there.
0: You know, the first step, I'm just about out of time here, the first step here yeah. has to be the province has got to stop stringing the city along here. I mean, you know, the minister came into town last in December and said, no LRT, we're not going to build it. And uh, that went over, as you might yeah, expect it would. Not very well. But then, and they're going to port this panel, who's going to make recommendations about this? And then the Premier comes out the other day and says, well, you know, we might reconsider LRT if the panel says, yeah, we should do this anyway. Well, and that, that's supposed to happen, I guess, about middle of Fe- or the end of February, somewhere in that time frame there. So your, your point's well taken. I don't think anybody's going to do anything until they find out, or, or unless the province just says, no, LRT's not happening, or yes, we are going to build a smaller one. Uh, we've got to get some definition from the province here as to what's going on, and you guys are in limbo in the meantime.
5: That's it. That's it. I'm still just waiting for the n- other shoe to drop.
0: Which... You don't know when that's going to happen.
5: Nope. And at my age, I really don't need this kind of stress.
0: Nobody does. Nobody does. It's, uh, it's, it's something that needs to be addressed. And the, I, I, I can understand city council's position right now simply saying we, we don't know what to do. Uh, because if they come back and say they're going to build all RT anyway, they, but even if they do, uh, are they going to need all this land? We don't know.
4: No, they don't. And so, But the main point is that LRT or no LRT, we still have this problem of providing affordable housing. Exactly. Not social housing, but affordable, affordable housing yeah. on a non-market model. So it, ha- it, it would be on the balance of what LRT doesn't need in that corridor if LRT should by any chance go ahead. In any case, we still need it in lots of other areas of the city and lots of other cities in the province.
0: Sadly, uh, there just doesn't seem to be much coordination here between all three levels of government, actually, and, and you're, you're the victims in this whole thing. Well, not just you, but I mean a number of other people that are involved in this. Uh, we'll certainly keep in touch with you guys and see what's going to happen over the next little while and be uh, kind of nice to d- uh, exert a little political pressure here and see if you can get some response. We'll talk to that our, would be nice. some of the folks <laughs> on council about this. Uh, Sharon, good luck. Sean, thank you thank guys you. for coming in today. Thank you. Members of the uh, King Street Tenants United.